0: Welcome to The Law with D.K. Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is episode 64, and it's a major case with an almost generic name. It's Texas versus the United States. Lots of other states, two individuals are involved on the plaintiff side and other organizations and individuals that are named on the defendant side. But less than a month ago, December 18th of 2019, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the district court decision that the individual mandate provision in the Affordable Care Act, the ACA or Obamacare, is no longer constitutional. Now, we discussed the district court case right after it came out in episode 17 of the law back in December of 2018. Note, I said the Fifth Circuit held that the ACA is no longer constitutional. Those words are important. It was constitutional when the U.S. Supreme Court said so back in 2012 when they decided the NFIB, National Federation of Independent Business, versus Sebelius, who was the head of the Department of Health Human Services, or whatever it's called, in, of the U.S. at the time under Obama. So that was back in 2012, but things have changed. Something very important has changed. And we'll go over what that was, what changed, and why it is important. As always, The Law with DK Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to the Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. Follow this podcast on social media. That's Twitter at thelawdkw and on facebook.com slash Law with DK Williams. Let me know what you think. Like, review, comment, subscribe, share, all that. Thank you. That helped us out. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching, media appearances. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. Likewise, contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at The Law with D.K. Williams via sponsorship. For example, this particular case, this Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals came out last month, is 98 pages long. And it isn't exactly like reading Hemingway going over. It's not even like reading Faulkner. It takes time to digest these judicial opinions. And I, I read these cases, annotate them as I'm reading them. I put together my notes in an outline. Record the podcast and edit it before it can be published and you can hear it. Now, I do this almost every single week. Altogether, it takes me at least eight hours to do one of these. One workday, roughly, to complete. And I do this every week, almost every week. This is episode 64, coming out on January 9th of 2020. Episode one was published in September 1st of 2018. Doing the Math and shows just about one a week. Now I enjoy doing them, and I think it's important. And as I periodically mention. It is important to read cases if one wants to have an informed opinion on them. I always include a link to the actual cases in the show notes for anyone who wishes to check check it out and see the actual source. Now, I don't expect people to read them all, but I want everyone to know that those who have not read it, like you hear in the news, um, Congress people especially are just talking heads, that if they have not read it, they have no basis for a legitimate opinion. They're basing their opinion on what they've heard from somebody else. And it's even worse when somebody you're hearing is basing their opinion on a case they haven't read based on what somebody else said who didn't read the case either. It just gets worse and worse. Now, my discussion of these cases comes from my perspective and my biases. I would never not acknowledge that, and I don't pretend to be objective on this. I try to be as objective as I can, but no one can be 100% objective. I recognize that. So, but I do my best to be thoughtful. I do my best to be intellectually honest and consistent. I'm sure I fail. I, I'm human. But I have read the cases and try to point out the issues that exist, even when I come to my own conclusion and give it to you. If I fail to do that, let me know. If I fail to do that, tell me. And as Rep. Butler said, I apologize again for all my shortcomings. A major impetus of me starting this podcast was listening to congressmen indignantly rail against judicial decisions they'd clearly not read. It's embarrassing. It's even worse um, on talk radio and cable news, and I wanted to counteract some of that misinformation. So, if you're so inclined, a sponsorship helps me in that mission. Again, contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com. Often people substitute passion for thought. Nowhere is that more true in politics and political commentary. And politicians are often rewarded for that substitution. People like it when people get their dander up, right? They get excited and they're passionate about something. But I want to encourage people to not make that substitution. Do not substitute passion for thought. Because it's not. In fact, this is a notion upon which our government was formed. Thomas Cranowater discusses that in his presentations on the Federalist Papers. So check out his podcast at SpeakeasyIdeas.com and go see him talk when you get the chance. He is the main guy behind SpeakeasyIdeas.com, the platform which is helping me get these out. So Texas versus the United States. This case was brought by Texas and a bunch of other states and two individuals who opposed Obamacare they filed the lawsuit. As always, I've, I've got a link to the case which lists all of the states involved as plaintiffs and as defendants, because on the other side is the United States, who is nominally defending Obamacare, and several states who want to support it as well and keep it alive. Now, this Fifth Circuit vote tally was two to one in favor of Texas and the other plaintiffs who won at the trial court level on summary judgment. The case is 98 pages, and the dissent is 35 of that. Now, the dissent is almost entirely about standing and not the substantive merits of the case. Now, standing is an important legal concept. I've mentioned this before, but it's pretty boring, and I like to focus on the sexy part of the ruling. Yes, I'm a geek for thinking any of it is sexy. Now, the majority opinion spent about 30 pages on standing of the plaintiffs. Ultimately, they did find standing amongst all the plaintiffs that are still in it. Otherwise, that would have been in the end of the case. If there's no standing, there's no lawsuit. From the opinion, basically what that means is, quote, a case or controversy does not exist unless the person asking the court for a decision has standing, which requires a showing of injury, causation, and redressability. So if you haven't been hurt by somebody, you can't sue them, in essence. If you haven't been hurt at all, you can't sue anybody. If you have been hurt, you can't sue someone who didn't do anything to it, didn't cause it in any way. And if you are hurt and someone... was at least partially responsible for causing it. If there's nothing the court can do about it, there's no redressability, no standing. That's the basics of how that's laid out. Then the majority spent another 18 pages on the issue of severability. That is, since they conclude correctly that the individual mandate, just like the district court ruled, the individual mandate is no longer constitutionally authorized. And we'll get into specifically why because it's not very difficult concept so since the individual mandate is no longer constitutionally authorized does that mean the rest of the aca must fail or can the mandate be severed severability right from the rest of it to save some of what remains the district court said the whole thing had to fail because the individual mandate failed and the fifth circuit remanded back to the district judge for more findings on the severability issue Now, that leaves 11 pages on the sexy part, whether or not the constitutional authority for the mandate still exists. Now, the Supreme Court has done something unusual in this case. Since California and the defending states lost this. They appealed this Fifth Circuit opinion case up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court doesn't have to hear it, but they're going to decide if they are or not. The Supreme Court has ordered an expedited schedule of whether or not they should hear the case. I'm going to quote NBCNews.com story, uh, which I've linked to, because it basically explains the scheduling issue while also getting something absolutely and completely wrong. They say, on this article the supreme court on monday ordered the trump administration and states challenging obamacare to respond by friday to an appeal filed by defenders of the health care law that's true 19 blue states led by california asked the supreme court last week for a quick decision on whether to take the case they're appealing last month's ruling by a federal appeals court that said obama's individual mandate is unconstitutional so far so good they're all right on this here's the part that is just blatantly wrong and that the rest of the law cannot survive without it. The Fifth Circuit did not say the rest of the law cannot survive without the mandate. Did the mandate's no good? It did not say the rest of it must fall. That was the district court. The Court of Appeals specifically said, we're gonna have him go back and see if it does or not. Here are some things he needs to do. So the Fifth Circuit specifically remanded the issue back to the district court. They spent 18 pages discussing why the district court needed a redo on this issue. Someone didn't read the actual opinion. This is not like one line in a 98-page opinion that they missed. This is 18 pages of a 30-some odd page majority opinion. They didn't read it, but that didn't stop them from writing about it. Remember, it's fun thing to read the case. It's another to listen to someone who has read it. It's something, far less, to listen to someone who has not read it. I said that there's zero utility to listening to someone who hasn't read the case about their opinion. In fact, there's negative utility in listening to someone who has not read the case. Now, and I put a link to this article in the show notes. So the Fifth Circuit, in a two-to-one decision, upheld the most important part of the district court's opinion on Obamacare. So if you'll remember, the U.S. Supreme Court in 2012 said that Obamacare was constitutionally legit because the individual mandate that required you to either buy insurance or pay a tax, because that's what they said in the opinion, which kind of came out of left field because the entire process of this thing being debated, it was sold as not being a tax. And then the Supreme Court said, oh yeah, it is, and that's why it's legit. So the Supreme Court said it's legit because it's a tax. Now that tax is zero. Therefore, the constitutional basis is likewise zero. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals made a simple conclusion. If the linchpin was a tax that held the thing together, if that linchpin is removed, it's no longer held together. If the only legitimate basis, as the Supreme Court found in the NFIB v. Serbelius case, is a tax, only reason it's okay. Once the tax is gone, it's no longer okay. This is not that difficult of a legal concept. Judge Jennifer Walker Elrod wrote the opinion. Now she was appointed by George W Bush to the Fifth Circuit in 07. Before that, she was a judge in Harris County, which is in Houston. She's 53 and she went to Baylor undergrad and Harvard Law School. She was joined by Kurt D Inglehart, who joined ride in the majority. And he was appointed by Trump to the Fifth Circuit just last year in 2018. And, of course, the people that want to defend Obamacare regardless of the, his constitutionality go, Oh, look, he's a, he just got appointed by Trump in 2018. Well, yeah, that's how the process works. Somebody appoints all of them. Some president appoints all of them. Before being appointed to the Fifth Circuit in 2018, he was a federal district judge, and he was appointed by W to that position in 2001. So he's been on the federal bench since 2001, been on the Fifth Circuit since 2018. One thing I do like about him is that he's not an Ivy League elite, so that's cool. (laughs) He went to Louisiana State for both undergraduate and law school. I imagine he will be watching the Monday night championship game between LSU and Clemson for college football. Now, the one dissenter is Carolyn Deneen King. She's on senior status currently. She's 81. She's been on the Fifth Circuit since 1979. She was appointed by Carter. She went to Smith College and Yale Law. So there we have another Ivy League elite. Judge Elrod starts her opinion by mentioning the pros and cons of the policy behind the ACA as debated when it was passed. She mentioned spends like one paragraph saying this is what was debated. Then she says something very important that I wish a lot more judges would acknowledge, and not just acknowledge, but abide by. She says, None of these policy issues are before the court, and for good reason. The courts are not institutionally equipped to address them. These issues are far better left to the other two branches of government. The questions before this court are far narrower questions of law, not of policy. Great statement. And almost none of the statist criticism of this opinion discusses the law. They invariably discuss why the policy, in their view, is great policy. That is completely irrelevant to the judicial analysis. And we discussed how sanding and separability are very, very important, but they're boring legal issues. Now, the conclusion of the court, the circuit, remember, on the sexy part, they say, the individual mandate It's unconstitutional because it can no longer be read as a tax, and there is no other constitutional provision that justifies this exercise of congressional power. This is incredibly simple. The bulk, if not the totality of these rendering of garments and gnashing of teeth by supporters of the ASA, never mention that the linchpin to the whole thing has been removed. The thing that held it all together no longer exists. Congress has removed that. It's like removing the foundation of a building. It's not it can't stand anymore. These people they don't care about enforcing the Constitution. They care about implementing government control over you because they're smarter than you. And if we'd only let them plan the economy and tell you how health care should work, without that pesky Constitution thing getting in the way, we'd all be so much better off. So these people don't care about the Constitution. They care about implementing their policy over you. So they do their best to just ignore it, ignore the Constitution. And as I discussed in the district court case, which was we, we covered in episode 17, it's clear most critics have not read the opinion or they don't care. Many of them don't care. Many of them haven't read it. One thing that I see consistently is they, they bellow that the Supreme Court already ruled it was constitutional. Yeah. And the district court and the Fifth Circuit address what has changed since that ruling. The linchpin has been removed. For some reason, they can't acknowledge that. The ACA, Obamacare, was passed in 2010. The NFIB case versus Sibelius was decided two years later in 2012. So the Fifth Circuit talks about that timeline, that the Supreme Court decided that the ACA's individual mandate could be read as a tax on an individual's decision not to purchase insurance, which was a constitutional exercise of Congress taxing powers under Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution. Again, hey, what a crazy concept. Does Congress have constitutional authority to do this? People criticizing the decision don't care. You know, it's like when Nancy Pelosi laughed when she was asked, what was the constitutional justification or authorization For Obamacare, she just left. And that's what people continuously do, at least metaphorically. So back to the Fifth Circuit, the court, the Supreme Court, favored this tax interpretation to save the provision from unconstitutionality. Reading the provision as a standalone command to purchase insurance would have rendered it unconstitutional. This reading could not have been justified under the Commerce Clause, and that's what everybody was pointing to. That's what they always point to when they don't have any authority. They say, oh, it's the Commerce Clause. So they point to that, the Court goes, the Fifth Circuit goes on, because it, the Commerce Clause, was not justified because it would have done more than regulate commerce among the several states, which is what Congress has the authority to do. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution lists these things out. The court says it would have compelled Individuals to enter commerce in the first place. So it's not regulating commerce, it's compelling individuals to enter commerce in the first place. I think it's interesting that in footnote 7 of the 5th Circuit Court of Appeals case, the 5th Circuit mentions that or says, Chief Justice Roberts cautioned that concluding otherwise would empower the government to compel Americans into all kinds of behavior that the government thinks is beneficial for them, including, for example, compelling them to purchase broccoli. And Roberts was right about that. And Judge Elrod here in the Fifth Circuit is right to point that out. Constitution limits government. It can't do things just because it thinks it's a good idea. It's specifically prohibited from doing things just because they think it's a good idea. So since 2012, when Roberts cobbled together this coalition to save Obamacare because it's tax, something changed. Since then, something changed. In December of 2017, I'll read from the case. As part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, Congress, in December of 2017, set the shared responsibility payment amount, the amount a person must pay for failing to comply with the individual mandate, the tax that they must pay. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court called it. And that's the only reason they are allowed to do it. Congress is allowed to do this. So Congress set the shared responsibility payment, which is disingenuous way to call it a tax without calling it a tax. So that amount was set to the lesser of zero percent of an individual's household income or zero dollars. What does that mean? This is where the linchpin was removed. The linchpin thus destroyed, the linchpin removed, the keystone destroyed, the foundation raised. Fifth Circuit goes on, two months after the shared responsibility payment was set at $0, the plaintiffs here, two private citizens in 18 states, filed this lawsuit against several federal defendants, including the United States of America. The plaintiffs argued that the individual mandate was no longer constitutional because one, NFIB, Supreme Court case from 2012, rested the individual mandate's constitutionality exclusively on reading the provision as a tax. And that's correct. That's what the Supreme Court did. And Two, the 2017 amendment undermined any ability to characterize the individual mandate as a tax because the provision no longer generates revenue, a requirement for a tax. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court said. A tax, among other things, has to generate revenue. If it doesn't generate revenue, it's not a tax. The plaintiffs argued further, because the individual mandate, was essential to and inseverable from the rest of the ACA. Remember, this is what the plaintiffs are saying. The entire ACA must be enjoined. It must be scrapped. Now, that last part about the entire thing failing does not necessarily follow, and I don't think it does. Because some of the ACA is not dependent on the mandate. For example, one easy example of this, because it's a 900-page document, restaurants must post certain nutritional information. Now, there's really no reason that must be invalidated, because the mandate no longer has any constitutional legitimacy. They're not related, just because they're in the same bill. At least, to me, that's the legitimate argument here. And that's what the Fifth Circuit remanded back to the district court for them to look at that again. The Fifth Circuit says the district court agreed with the plaintiff's arguments on the merits. Specifically, the district court held out one, the individual plaintiffs had standing because the individual mandate compelled them to purchase insurance. Two, setting the shared responsibility payment to zero rendered the individual mandate unconstitutional. And three, the unconstitutional provision could not be severed from any other part of the ACA. So the Fifth Circuit agrees with the district court on the first two and remands on the third about severability. In its discussion of the law of standing, the Fifth Circuit mentions a 2019 Supreme Court case that we discussed. So if you're following the law, you know a lot about this stuff already. So Fifth Circuit mentions the Department of Commerce versus New York, which we discussed in episode 42 of the law. That was the case about the Census Bureau being allowed to ask about citizenship on the census. The Supreme Court said they were not allowed to ask now, that was wrong, and we went over it in episode 42, so check it out. Because they, anyway, go check that one out before I d- jump back into that. The Fifth Circuit quotes Chief Justice Roberts in NFIB. The most straightforward reading of the individual mandate is that it commands individuals to purchase insurance. Using that reading of the statute, the individual mandate is not a valid exercise of Congress power under the Interstate Commerce Clause. The Constitution, he explained, gave Congress the power to regulate commerce, not to compel it. Okay, this is not a complicated notion. We, we've gone over the Commerce Clause in detail, specifically in Episode 5, where we discussed Wickard v. Filburn, so check that one out for more on that. Fitzgerald goes on, this limited reading of the Interstate Commerce Clause, and by extension of the Necessary and Proper Clause, was necessary to preserving the country that the framers of our Constitution envisioned. As Chief Justice Roberts observed, if the individual mandate were a proper use of the power to regulate interstate commerce, that power would justify a mandatory purchase to solve almost any problem. Absolutely nothing wrong with that statement, it's correct. So Roberts is correct. Congress would be able to attempt to solve the homeless problem by requiring everyone to buy a house. That's no less absurd than solving the health care problem, however that's been defined. You can solve that by requiring everyone to buy health insurance. And if Congress can do those types of things, it really has no limit, no limit on its power. Now, restriction of federal authority over interstate commerce has been on life support since Wicker, episode five we discussed, NFIB versus Sevilius did not pull the plug completely to kill it because it said, no, the power to regulate commerce among the states does not mean you can make an individual buy something that they don't wouldn't otherwise buy. So they didn't pull the plug to completely kill it, but it certainly did not revive it. It left it plugged in on life support, plugged into multiple machines, but still plugged in. They didn't pull the plug. The circuit goes on, quoting the Supreme Court elevating Congress' power to regulate commerce among the several states to a power to create commerce among the several states would make a Leviathan of the federal government, everywhere extending the sphere of its activity and drawing all power into its impetuous vertex. All right, so that's Roberts quoting the Federalist 48 for that flowery poetic language comes from. And I mentioned Krenowitter's lectures on the Federalist papers. Here's the Supreme Court citing to them, they show up frequently in the Supreme Court opinions dealing with constitutional issues. So they're very important to to understand. Fifth Circuit goes on. The more expansive reading of the Interstate Commerce Clause would render that provision a font of unlimited power, or in the words of Alexander Hamilton, a hideous monster whose devouring jaws spare neither sex nor age, nor high nor low, nor sacred nor profane. So again, that's the Fifth Circuit quoting the Supreme Court, quoting Hamilton, the Federalist Papers. But let's make no mistake. Many people want the federal government to be a font of unlimited power, that they know the Constitution is designed to stop it, to be an impediment to such a font of unlimited power, and they want that impediment removed. So, the ACA Obamacare was not legitimate pursuant to Congress power to regulate commerce among the states, but Roberts wanted to save it. Or he found a way to save it. So he, quote, reasoned that the individual mandate could be read in conjunction with the shared responsibility payment in order to save the individual mandate from unconstitutionality. Read together with the shared responsibility payment, the entire statutory provision could be read as a legitimate exercise of Congress taxing power for four reasons. They talk about the four reasons. Basically, the the biggest one is that it creates revenue for the general fund in the Treasury. If it doesn't do that, it's not a tax. If it doesn't raise revenue, it's not a tax. Not a difficult concept. The court concluded that the particular section of the ACA, Section 5000A, is therefore constitutional because it can reasonably be read as a tax. All right, so the entire 900 some odd page ACA was sold to the public because it was not a tax. Hey, don't worry about it, this is not a tax. This is just a shared responsibility payment. But the Supreme Court said, you know what, it is a tax. And that's why we found it's legitimate. That's why the Supreme Court found it was legitimate. It is a tax. Now, if something is sold as one thing, but then you later find out it's not that thing that is fraud in everyday parlance that's fraud if somebody at the used car lot says no this car was not in a flood it's cool then you buy it and the dealer says well you know what it was but you're still stuck with it so that's a lie you bought the car based on an illegitimate premise a fraudulent premise slam dunk fraud case but like social security another government program the aca was largely passed on fraud we discussed the fraud behind social security in episode 10 Fleming versus Nestor, so check that one out. The Supreme Court in the ACA case noted that the primary characteristic of a tax is that it generates revenue for the United States Treasury. That's what the ACA tax did. Now, however, there is no more tax. And people are arguing that it is still a tax, that a $0 tax is a tax. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd the links that these people will go to to defend a policy they like, regardless of its constitutionality. This is not a difficult exercise in connecting the dots. None of these factors that result in a tax whether or not something is a tax, none of those factors exist anymore. None of them. So all of these people crying and wailing about the partisan injustice of this decision are embarrassing themselves, except, of course, to be embarrassed, one must be capable of shame. They apparently are not. And it's embarrassing that the Fifth Circuit has to spell this out so fundamentally, but this is what they do they say. Now that the shared responsibility payment is set at zero, the provision saving construction is no longer available. The four central attributes that once saved the statute, because it could be read as a tax, no longer exist. Most fundamentally, the provision no longer yields the essential feature of any tax because it does not produce at least some revenue for the government. Because the provision no longer produces revenue, it necessarily lacks the three other characteristics that the Supreme Court mentioned that once rendered the provision a tax. The shared responsibility payment is no longer paid into the treasury by taxpayers when they file their tax returns because the payment is no longer paid by anyone. Like I said, it's embarrassing that this has to be spelled out so fundamentally to people who still refuse to acknowledge it. The mandate was constitutional, according to the Supreme Court in NFIB versus Sebelius, because it was a tax. Congress has the power to tax. That's right there in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution. That constitutional authority was the only thing that legitimized the mandate. That tax no longer exists. Without the tax, the constitutional authority is no more. No more tax. No more constitutional legitimacy. I understand many people don't like that result, but that is the result. Having agreed with the district court correctly that the mandate is no longer constitutionally legit, it's no longer authorized, The Fifth circuit went into a long explanation of the severability doctrine, that is, if one part of the statute is struck, does the rest of it have to be struck along with it. And that it does not necessarily have to be completely struck like the district court did. So the Fifth Circuit remanded back to the district court to look at that again. Of course, the district court said the whole thing had to die with the mandate, but that doesn't necessarily follow. Like I mentioned, the requirement that restaurants have to post certain nutritional information has nothing to do with the mandate. And I don't see any real reason that that part and other parts have to be struck down. Those parts can be severed from the mandate and survive. Again, I might not like that outcome, but it is the outcome. Fifth Circuit says severability analysis is that it's most demanding in the context of sprawling and amended statutory schemes like the one at issue here. The ACA's framework of economic regulations and incentives spans over 900 pages of legislative text and is divided into 10 titles. The district court opinion does not do the necessary legwork of parsing through the over 900 pages of the post-2017 ACA when it was amended and the tax went to zero. District court did not do the work parsing through all that explaining how particular segments are inextricably linked to the individual mandate. If they're inextricably linked, then they have to fail with the mandate. If not, they don't. Court goes on. It may still be that none of the ACA is severable from the individual mandate, even after this district court inquiry is concluded. It may be that all of the ACA is severable from the individual mandate. It may also be that some of the ACA a is severable from the individual mandate and some is not the district court may not have to perform that tedious task because the pro-obamacare states have appealed to the supreme court and if the supreme court hears it it doesn't go back to the district court it goes up to the supreme court and the supreme court has ordered the winners of the case texas and the rest to expedite their response as to whether or not the supreme court should hear the case so the supreme court could expedite the matter and here at this term making a decision come out sometime in the summer sometime before the november election of course we'll let you know what happens right here in the law with dkw and now you know why the individual mandate has been struck down why the arguments why it shouldn't be are pretty specious and we'll see what happens from there and we'll let you know of course i'm dk williams and this has been the law episode 64 texas versus the united states declaring that the individual mandate of Obamacare is no longer constitutionally authorized because it no longer involves a tax. The Supreme Court will have the final word on this, either this term or later. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Send me some input, Twitter at The Law, D-K-W, follow me there, and on Facebook.com slash The Law with D-K-Williams. I'm available for those speaking engagements, consulting, teaching, media appearances. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com to set that up. Until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends, live dangerously.